Welcome to the All In for Citrus podcast, the latest on citrus research from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network. Welcome to another edition of the All In for Citrus podcast. Before we get to today's episode, on a personal note, this will be my last time hosting the All In for Citrus podcast. I am entering a new industry in Gainesville, Florida, but the podcast will be left in good hands as my coworker Taylor Hillman will be taking over the show. Taylor has several years of radio and podcasting experience and is joining us on this episode. Taylor, we're happy to have you on board. Thanks, Abby. I am excited to host this podcast. As you know, I've been the one who's been putting the podcast together, so I've been familiar with it from its inception. Um, The UF IFAS team, Southeast Agnet, and of course you and our correspondent, Ernie Neff, have done a fantastic job getting this channel going, getting this critical information out to producers, and I'm looking forward to keeping up that momentum. And thank you to you, Abby, for all of the hard work and good luck in the future. They may be little shoes, but I'll hope to try and fill your shoes as best as I can. Well, thanks for those kind words, Taylor. All right, let's go ahead and get to what the listeners are joining us for, and that's the update from the researchers. In today's episode, we actually have an out-of-state guest, Georgios Vitalakis, a professor and extension specialist from the University of California, Riverside, joins us via phone and discusses the current state of HLB in California's citrus industry and how they're managing this devastating disease. He will be our last guest this month. We'll also have a post-harvest specialist, Mark Reitenauer, on. He'll be talking about the results he's seen from evaluating the quality and shelf life of mandarins and sweet oranges. Then we'll hear again from citrus entomologist Lauren Diepenbrock as she gives Ernie Neff an update on a new citrus pest. But first, as always, let's go over to Ernie and Citrus Research and Education Center Director Michael Rogers to kick off the program. I'm Ernie Neff. I'm with Michael Rogers, director of the Citrus Research and Education Center at Lake Alfred. Michael, welcome. All right. Thank you, Ernie. Michael, let's start. During October, there were a series of citrus nutrition events that you held around the state. Were those successful? Uh, Yes, Ernie. Uh, We actually had very good participation and turnout by the Florida industry to these meetings We held uh, three of these events around the state during the month of October. Um, They were very well attended by growers, and and, um, we actually probably exceeded our expectations, to be honest, because we weren't sure how many people were going to be interested in in working with us to help fine-tune their nutrition programs. And the numbers that started coming out kind of exceeded our expectations. And and in fact, at at one of our, our last location in Immokalee, we actually exceeded the fire marshal standards for the room. So what we've had to do, we've had to actually cut off the, um, we cut off the uh, enrollment for, for the Immokalee site, and we didn't want to turn people away. We wanted to give people one more last option if they wanted to participate but couldn't make it to the meetings. And so we've been able to add a, th- a fourth meeting that will be taking place, a fourth nutrition event. It will be November the 8th at the Highland County Extension Office in Sebring. And, and Lori Herner, our agent there, is going to be helping host that for us. Um, it's going to start at 10 a.m. on November the 8th. Um, it'll be the same program that we've done throughout the state, and we'll wrap up with a lunch at the end. But, but that'll be the last chance for growers. If you want to participate in this ongoing uh, citrus nutrition program, this is the last chance to um, uh, get your box, uh, your nutrition kit, and, and get enrolled in the program. 
There is um, registrations required, um, as was the case for the other three meetings um, for the event in Highlands County on November the 8th. There will be an Eventbrite um, link for, to register that will be going out by email. Um, uh, most everybody's getting those emails, whether it's through the agents or through our newsletter. Um, but that will be advertised starting um, uh, pretty soon, so you'll see that. But we do want folks to sign up for that if you're interested. And uh, again, we, we've had a really good turnout, and um, we're very excited about the um, uh, growers participating who've agreed to participate in this program so far. Excellent. Does the Citrus Nutrition Program end with these events that you've been holding, or is this a continuing program? Oh, this is just the start. Um, now, these are the these are you know the ends of the meetings we're holding, but. The, the purpose of the events are to get growers to sign up to participate in a year-long program. And, and the whole rationale, the reason for the, the Citrus Nutrition Program is for IFAS to help work with growers one-on-one to look and analyze the nutritional status of the soil and the trees in the grove and fine-tune or customize those nutrition programs that are needed for those groves to be more productive in the face of HLB. Um, and we, we've said this over and over, and it, it's true that no one program uh, is going to work across the board for, you know, you may have a grower who does a, a program that works for him, but it's not going to work for his neighbor because every grove has different needs. And so we think this is really one of the most important things growers can do uh, to stay in business and survive HLB. And so what we're going to be doing is uh, the growers who've enrolled in this program over the next year will be working uh, directly with our IFAS scientists um, to fine-tune their nutrition programs based on the sampling that's happening, the nutritional sampling of leaves and the uh, once-a-year sampling of soil. And so I just want to remind everybody who's signed up for this program and participated, who's got their nutrition kits, don't forget, now's the time to start sending in those first samples of the year uh, to the lab. And we've already had some of those samples, um, the results coming back from the lab, and we're reaching out to those growers and getting the results back to them with a recommendation. So so for those of you who've, who've, who've participated, thank you, and let's uh, keep up the momentum going into this next year. Michael, the Citrus Research and Education Center's Citrus Plant Improvement Team just recently held its first fruit display day of the season, and it sounds like there was a very good turnout for that event? Uh, yes, we had, surprisingly, we had a really good turnout for the very first uh, fruit display event of the season. Um, this is usually the smallest event, uh, the smallest number of fruit. It's very early in the season. Uh, there's just a handful of fruit varieties available, um, and, they're, and they're, again, mostly fresh fruit varieties. But we had about 70 people show up for this first event on October the 15th uh, here in Lake Alfred, and that's actually a really good turnout for early in the season. And um, but what I'll tell folks is, you know, we really hope folks will continue to participate in these. We've got a number more planned throughout the season. And over time, they just continually get better and better with each one as we have new varieties that mature and can be sampled at these events. Uh, each one will have a little more to it. And so um, I just want to let folks know the dates that are coming up. Um, the next fruit display event that will happen at the CRAC in Lake Alford will be November the 14th. Uh, then there'll be a second one, or well, actually there'll be the third one, uh, will be December the 10th. Then in January, we jump across the state to the Indian River Research and Education Center in Fort Pierce. I don't know the exact date yet on that, but look for it. We'll, it'll be announced. But that January event will be in Fort Pierce. And then we come back to the CREC February the 14th um, for our final of the fruit tasting days. And uh, so, again, uh, those, you know, we're going to get those on the calendar, and we hope people will participate in those. 
Um, you know, as we get later in the season, especially the December and, and into February, uh, we start to include a lot more of the new juice or processing orange varieties in these, these tasting events as well. And uh, so, again, um, there's a lot of new things coming out of IFAS. Um, for example, OLL20 is a new variety that was just released this past week by um, IFAS. Uh, it's a ju uh, juicing or processing orange. And that's one that if you want to sample the juice from that, uh, I would expect that to be in the, uh, the February 14th fruit display day. That's a late season orange. And so that would be one that you could sample uh, again at the, at the February display day. These events are obviously of value to growers, as we see from the turnout you got at the first one, so they can learn about the new varieties they might want to plant. Uh, but IFAS also learns a lot from these events, right? Yeah, this is definitely a two-way street because we get a lot back out of this in IFAS of, of these events because um, grower feedback is really important for us. We, we have a pipeline of new materials being developed constantly. And we, our breeders produce a lot of new material, but we've got to figure out what, what material is, is the right material to move on, to release, and make available to growers to plant and grow in their groves. So um, we really want that feedback on growers to sample and say, you know, this is something I want to move forward with. Um, and Because it, it does cost a lot of money to develop and release those varieties, so we can't release everything we produce. Um, but a lot of times, some of the things that um, gets, ends up getting released were things that we didn't uh, think about originally or weren't, weren't really thinking about pursuing initially until after we've had one of these display days. And you've probably heard, uh, we've talked, we've said this publicly, you know, for example, bingo is one of those stories of a variety that maybe not wasn't on our radar as much until after a fruit display day. Um, but even the more recent release of OLL20, um, that's another example. That's a processing orange, a very high quality um, processing orange. And we've had people sample that. Um, processors have then worked with that, uh, do, running some of their own tests. And they said, hey, you know, this is one of the highest quality orange juice processing, processing oranges we've seen in a long time. And it wasn't on the top of our list, probably. And so we actually, through all that feedback we've gotten from the industry, we pushed that forward. And now we have that new variety, that new juice orange variety, being re it's been released and is available for growers to plant now. So it's very important to get that feedback and help us make sure we're not overlooking something that's of importance to the industry. A very important or good example of the cooperation between growers and University of Florida that has been there for many, many decades. Anything else you'd like to talk about today, Michael? Uh, no, just to remind everybody, I, I mentioned it in the, in the previous podcast, you know, we are continuing to, ex to uh, expand our, our faculty in the plant improvement program here at the CREC, and we're in the process, we're about to close um, the application process for a new faculty position in the plant breeding program. This is a position uh, where the, the faculty member will be doing the late stage field, eva field evaluations of new varieties, um, especially working with growers in their groves to evaluate new plant material. So we expect that we will have those interviews taking place in early December. We don't have any of that set yet. We've not decided on the candidates, obviously, yet. We're still getting applications. But as soon as that closes and we have those dates announced, um, you'll hear more about that probably next podcast. And, and we really will hope that people will come out and uh, participate in those seminars, get to interact with these, these potential candidates for this faculty position, uh, because they're not only working with us, they're going to work with the growers. And so we want everybody to have a say and, and give us our feedback on who we hire for this position. Michael, lots of good information this time around. Many thanks. Thank you, Ernie.
Dr. Reitenauer, thank you for joining us this month on the All In for Citrus podcast. So we're going to be talking about some of the work that you've been doing recently. Um, so you've been evaluating the quality and shelf life of new mandarin and sweet orange selections for the fresh market. So talk about some of the results that you've seen from that. Yes. So we've been looking at these for a number of years because the goal is to um, try to identify which of these early selections um, produce fruit of good quality and also good uh, shelf life as well because uh, we don't want to be investing a lot of resources and materials that, that aren't going to perform well, um, especially for the fresh market. Um, so anyways, we've been looking at these for a number of years, um, and much of our data also goes into evaluating which selections are released in the first place. Um, so in the in the publication that we just came out with in Citrus Industry Magazine, we um, list there in terms of the mandarins, um, selections that were released in the fast track program and um, some other uh, selections that didn't perform as well. Um, they sometimes get released, but also more like uh, dooryard varieties as well. Um, and so what we found out with these ones that we've listed here, they generally all perform very well. Um, and uh, unfortunately, some of the trees, or a lot of the trees that we get are from very, like a single tree for these early selections. Um, but some of these, now that they've been released, we're starting to get more fruit so we can even get more extensive um, um, extensive data collection, uh, more confidence in the data. But even the ones that we pre present here in the publication, we've had uh, numerous evaluations, and so we can look at over time and over different seasons, and we start seeing a trend in which ones will per perform well. Great. So focusing on the mandarins, what were some of the varieties that showed the best results that you listed? Well, so the ones listed there, we have 100% healthy fruit, uh, when we talk about healthy fruit, that means when we evaluate them in storage, we don't see decay or uh, peel breakdown or other physiological disorders as well. So we had 100% um, healthy fruit after six or seven uh, weeks of storage for um, Sugar Bell, which is LB89, uh, 950, which is, when I say the other name, it's a, often a common name that's been associated with them, Florida Clementine. Uh, we also had for 7-6-27, um, which is commonly known as bingo, and then also for 1420 marathon. Uh, those all had 100% still healthy fruit um, after storage. So those are very good. And that's that's taking the fruit, um, not washing or waxing it, not treating it with any fungicides. So that's the inherent uh, shelf life that we're starting off with these selections. Um, and then after we get more fruit, we can start evaluating uh, more optimum storage conditions, handling conditions, um, types of waxes that might work best or how that affects shelf life and also especially the use of fungicides to help reduce post-harvest decay. Awesome. So on the flip side, what were some of the orange varieties that performed the best and that you listed? Well, there we had... Um, Again, we went uh, there. We went seven to eight weeks of storage, and we didn't have any that were giving us a hundred percent shelf life after that time. There, we were had um, two that were ninety-one to ninety-four percent um, still healthy fruit. Again, no fungicides or other um, post-harvest waxing or washing. Um, and those were T2-21 gave us ninety-one percent, and OLL8 gave us ninety-four percent of healthy fruit after that time period. Awesome. So uh, were there any surprising or unusual results from these evaluations that you saw? Yeah. So, um, well, one of the things is, is especially with the mandarins, um, 
they're known for usually more shorter shelf life. Um, but um, having a hundred percent healthy fruit over this period of time was was a surprise in my mind. I thought we would have more um, breakdown or, or problems with the fruit that might not last that long um, with no other uh, post-harvest fungicide treatments. Um, another thing we did notice is that on the ones, some, some of these ones like um, um, 411 Heather, which we had 89% um, shelf life, and some of the orange selections, there was 79 and 82 we often found what brought those down was like um, specific harvests and evaluations. Um, so, so a certain harvest might have um, a lot more decay for some reason. That could come from the field, from field conditions, um, disease, decay pressure out in the field, uh, or even handling issues. Say, for example, the people who happen to be harvesting those selections uh, were not as careful. Um, um, we usually, when we look at the fruit, when we get it, we look for obvious damage. And so if we get plugs or other types of injury, we don't even start evaluating that fruit. It's not, a, it's not suitable for evaluating for fresh. It would get sent to juice if we saw it in the packing house. So we don't even start off with that, but still there can be different handling that uh, contributes to, um, breakdown. Um, and that's one of the biggest things that causes, um, shorter shelf life is when we have uh, rough handling um, and the fruit get banged around for some reason, um, or there is uh, decay pressure in the field, the trees are weak, they're under stress, especially nowadays with HLB so prevalent in the industry, I've been out in the fields and I can see the fruit decaying on the trees. And uh, we just can't do anything to stop the decay if it's already started in the field. So we're going to have to start looking at uh, pre-harvest um, better methods of trying to reduce that even starting in the field. Right. Um, so finally, what advice would you offer to growers who are producing for the fresh market to increase the quality of their fruit? Yeah, so the best thing you can do is, is um, producing a healthy tree um, because once you harvest it, uh, we can't do anything to increase the quality, increase the health. We can slow down um, decay or peel breakdown or other types of disorders, um, slow everything down. But um, and that's hard in this in this day and age with HLB. Um, it takes a lot of care out there and a lot of vigilance to um, to look at the quality of the field. And then when you harvest it, when you look at it. Um, um, evaluate how strong the fruit looks and how far you might be able to send it. Can you send it to some place like um, Europe or Canada, or do you have to go more local domestic markets and such? Perfect. So that's about our time. But is there anything else that you'd like to add on uh, these evaluations or anything else? Well, we are looking at actually we're we're just getting some funding to look at some of those pre-harvest issues, um, trying to take the fight out to the field. Um, we used to have materials like Benlate and Topsin that we could spray before harvest and gave us really good post-harvest decay control and reduce the disease pressure out there. Um, but we need some new tools, and so we're looking at some new tools, new uh, options, and and how we can handle the fruit. Looking at ways of Evaluating better disease pressure out in the field for some of our decay pathogens because um, sometimes you don't even see it. Maybe the field looks good, but we've got a lot of inoculum that's out in the field. So um, that's our next step is really looking at how we can give some of these tools to the growers 
in the field to help reduce the and improve the quality of the fruit coming into the packing house. Awesome. Well, that sounds really exciting. Well, that's our, our time. So thank you so much for taking the time and for being on this month's program. We really appreciate it. I'm glad to help. Thank you. I'm Ernie Neff. I'm with Lauren Diepenbrock, University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences entomologist at the Citrus Research and Education Center. Welcome, Lauren. Hey, Ernie. Lauren, we have a new pest that came out uh, not too long ago, but tell us what that pest is and where it was found, where it is now, that sort of basic information, please. Sure. So in September um, this year, I was contacted by a grower down in Hendry County and by his extension agent that they were seeing a lot of damage in a mature tree crop. Um, and the damage entailed basically holes through the center of, of stems of uh, branches and stems. And those branches would then become brittle and break off. And when they started looking at it further, they found uh, a larva of an, of an unknown insect at the time. The larva was very characteristic of, of a cerambicid, which is a longhorn beetle. There are lots of different species of longhorn beetles in Florida, and quite a few of them we find in citrus because it's a great place to be a bug. And uh, we weren't really sure what was going on, so we were fortunate to work with DPI and start getting their ground crew looking for the pest and to kind of to figure out where it is, if, if it's spread beyond that, which we haven't heard much yet. Um, and to get some identification. So DPI has resources that uh, we don't necessarily have and, and expertise that we don't always have here. And they've been able to do some molecular identification on larvae that have been sent in. And so far, we've um, they've identified two native species that we find in citrus groves fairly regularly, which was you know comforting to find that they were native, native species, but not comforting to find that we were getting some unexpected damage out of them. Lauren, and of course, DPI is Division of Plant Industry. That's a division of the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. What damage does, you mentioned that we're seeing some damage. What kind of damage does this pest do? So the initial damage was actually found by uh, one of the Grove crew workers when he was out fixing an irrigation line. He hit a branch on accident and the branch fell right off, fruit and all. And he saw the hole in the center of the branch. And so he contacted the, the grove manager and the grove manager contacted us. And then we started looking around a little bit more and we'd find a lot of weak branches, a little bit of, a little bit of pressure or really heavy wind would just break them. And of course, that means as your fruit are getting heavier and heavier as they juice up throughout the season, there's going to be more pressure on those branches. And he's had a few more break off since as the fruit are getting larger um, and due to a large windstorm. Um, and so we went around the grove and we found places where the would basically be a junction of dead wood and fresh wood and you'd see a little a little bit of sap kind of coming out in that area and almost every single time there was a larva inside of there so we found a good way to find it in the field we've collected a whole bunch we have several bins of wood sitting here waiting for an adult to come out dpi has several bins of wood waiting for an adult to come out and another colleague who is a specialist on that group of beetles has samples waiting for beetles to come out but the larvae so far like i said have been two native species and um, both of those native species like dead wood or really damaged, sad, sad wood. So if you, if you have weak wood around, perfect spot for them. So that is probably the main symptom is if your branches are breaking off, right? Yeah, yeah. And honestly, we have, we have trees that are sick. You know, HLB is endemic here. We have a lot of dead wood in the system. 
you're likely to see some of these pop up here and there, but mostly we've just seen it in Henry County and kind of in about a five mile radius from the initial find. Um, they're still, uh, it's on the radar for the DPI crew and on the radar for um, the agents who are in that area to kind of keep an eye out for, for this damage. And we're just checking in with the grower periodically that we've primarily been working with. So Hendry County is the only county it's known in so far? That we know of. I mean, these beetles are everywhere. These, these species that we've identified or that DPI has identified so far, they're everywhere. And it just happens that the damage is there. And so hopefully we don't see that in other places. It's just it's popping up very strongly in that particular area, which suggests that there's a very high population of these beetles and there's a lot of resources available for them. So they're, they, as beetles, are doing quite well in the system. If a grower does think he has seen these symptoms and might have the longhorn beetle, who should he contact? They can shoot me an email and I'll put them in touch with uh, the DPI person who's running the surveys and they will, either they or I will get out there and get a sample collected or have them send it in to, to DPI for analysis. And we're, we're hoping it remains just those two primary species and most likely it is. Most likely we've just had some major changes to our system and insects sometimes change and adapt to what's available in their, in their uh, local habitat. So you know, these native bugs are just finding a new resource. So since you offer Dev, growers contact you, slowly give your email address, please. Oh, you're asking for pain here. <laughs> <laughs> it's L, D as in David, I, E, P as in Peter, E, N, B as in boy, R, O, C, K at ufl.edu. Um, and uh, just email is the best way to get me, and I will gladly put you in touch with Jason Johnson, who is doing a lot of our, our work with DPI on their end of it. He's been a great collaborator. Um, that, that wasn't that painful. So now, <laughs> now the big question, how do we deal with this critter? All right, so it is in the wood, which means there's really not a whole heck of a lot we can do. Uh, there's nothing we can do to treat a, an insect in a production system that is inside of your system. You can't get material inside to kill it. So if you know when they're active, which we will know once we have a full idea of, of, of everybody that's in there, and again, I fully suspect that it is the two species we're hitting each time. Um, once we know when they're active, you could put on a preventative uh, contact toxin, but really the best thing that you could do is to get the dead wood out of your field. That's pruning, that's pushing out dead trees. Just get the, get the extra resource out of there because if you prevent them from establishing in those areas, they won't have the opportunity to get into your tree that is already weakened and ha is an easily available resource if they're in that system. Anything else very brief you'd like to add today? I think that's it for now, but if folks just stay vigilant and if they see something, let us know. We're more than willing to work with them. We want to help, and DPI definitely wants to help. They've been really fantastic collaborators for us throughout all of the interesting insects we found this, this year. Excellent. Thank you very much, Lauren. Thank you. Okay, I have uh, Dr. Vitalakis on the phone with us today, and he's going to be talking about his recent visit to Florida. He does a lot of work with the California's citrus industry. He works at uh, UC Riverside, and he does a lot of work with HLB, just as our uh, UF IFAS researchers do here in Florida. So thank you for joining us this month. And to start off, um, talk about your visit to Florida that you had um, earlier this week and how that came about. And I do understand that you made a presentation as well. So so you can talk about those key points from that presentation. So, yes, thank you for having me. 
I received an invitation from the University of Florida IFAS Indian River Research and Education Center to participate on, on their monthly uh, seminar series. And they asked me to give them an update on the current situation and management of uh, Huang Longbing, of HLB in California. So I split my talk in four main points. I gave a general introduction of um, the citrus uh, production in California as it is uh, today. I gave them um, a historical perspective of how the uh, Asian citrus chili, the vector of Huang Longbing, and how the HLB um, has been um, spreading in the state. And then the third point was what we have been doing in California to try to contain the vector and the disease. And then finally, I closed with some highlights of a few research projects that I have been involved. I was truly impressed with the uh, with the Indian River uh, Center, um, uh, new facilities, young faculty, um, beautiful field experiments that I'm I mean, you know, plant pathologists have this, this this twisted notion of what's beautiful. Beautiful Huanglobing experiments that the researchers can do in the field in Florida that we in California cannot. Uh, so, um, but once more, I was impressed with uh, the quality of the of the research center and the work that they're doing there. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so it sounds like you had a really awesome trip um, down here in Florida. I'm happy that you were able to come down. So a couple other questions. In your opinion, what HLB research that y'all are doing in California do you think could actually benefit Florida growers as well? So um, a key point of my presentation, and it's an unfortunate event, um, the fact that in California we had the opportunity to be as prepared as possible to face the disease and the insect because we started our preparations uh, years before the first psyllid was found in the state. And the, the, your question is reversed. We really benefited a lot from the, Cali from the Florida experience. And our friends in Florida made sure that we didn't repeat the mistakes that they, that they made uh, in the late 1990s when they first found the psyllid. So uh, there is there is benefits to Florida at the end uh, from our research, and I'm, I'm going to explain to you how. But um, the key point of the, my presentation was that California is making history today. We are the only state uh, that we have the insect for 11 years now. The first find was in 2008, and we ha do not have an epidemic in our orchards. We have a little bit more than 1,600 positive HLB trees in the state, even though the seed has spread throughout the state from south to north. And all these positive trees have been in backyards. We do not have an HLB epidemic in our commercial citrus. And that's because we heard our friends in Florida and our friends in, Bla in Brazil, and we built a layered system where include the state government, the local government, the state government, the federal government, the citrus industry, the scientists. And we have built this onion of activities to fight the disease and the insect. And um, uh, as I say in my talks, the Huang Longbing is a community disease, and it will take the whole community to resolve. It's not... You cannot have one grower 
or one neighborhood do the right thing and the neighbors do not do the right thing because then the whole system collapses and the disease uh, takes over. Where, where I hope, since we have been in this advantaged position, where I hope our research will help the Floridians is we have access to germplasm here at, in, in California, citrus germplasm that shows potential to HLB tolerance. And we also have access to a broad range of citrus relatives in the citrus variety collection here at UC Riverside. And when we brought the two um, uh, scientific elements together from Florida and California, a lot of hybridization happened, literally. Um, so our breeders in Florida, our, our breeders in California speaking to the breeders in Florida, and I think um, uh, the outcomes will be very positive. I think we're going to have soon a hybrid uh, citrus that can tolerate the disease a little bit better than what we have right now in our orchards. And my program has also been involved, the Citrus Coronal Protection Program, in a massive effort to secure uh, citrus germplasm in Florida that has been at risk because of the HLB disease, secure it here in California, uh, put it uh, under uh, our environmental conditions, preserve it, evaluate it, and, and continue this process of trying to find um, resistance and tolerance in citrus against uh, the vector or the disease. Awesome. Yeah. You know, I think we've seen in Florida as well that um, it does take a community. It doesn't, you know, it isn't just going to be one grower changing their practices. It has to be the whole industry. Um, so speaking kind of along those lines, uh, how can, do you think, how can Florida and California citrus industries work together from now into the future in the fight against HLB. Um, as you know, and I'm sure as you heard during your visit, HLB it has been and continues to be a very big issue for our growers here in Florida. So um, speaking about that community, how do you think, you know, that could grow even moving forward? So I've been, I've been with UC Riverside for the last 19 years. The first four years I was a student with the Citrus program here and then in 2005, I started as a faculty and as director of the CCTP. Those early days, uh, the community that we are talking about was was closed. Um, this is mine. This is yours. Um, how are we going to find a way to exchange material? All the regulations are not in place for this kind of activity. The discussions I engaged in 2006 were going nowhere. So one good thing that happened with organically with the the, the catastrophe and and, and, the, and the potential to eliminate citrus because of this disease, the the discussions open and the community that we're talking about is already existing. The California Citrus Research Board. Uh, which is the the um, growers uh, box tax organization that uh, fund research uh, focused on the California needs, and the CRDF, the Citrus um, uh, Research Development Foundation in Florida, already having for several years now they are co-funding projects that they could be uh, mutually beneficial. Uh, the federal government is uh, sponsoring um, 
through the NIFA, the National Institute of Food and Agriculture, research that it's um, uh, de facto, in order, in order for a project to be funded, has to be multi-state. So the federal uh, government is facilitating collaboration between Florida and California. Uh, myself, uh, I'm, I'm involved uh, as the extension element uh, of several uh, Florida, uh, Florida research um, projects where whatever our friends in Florida discover, they communicate it with me and my job is to communicate it um, in um, California. And invitations like the one happened the other day, I make sure I bring information from California uh, back to Florida. Uh, also, social media and, and online technologies have brought the two industries together. There is all sorts of reporting available online for uh, both uh, California and Florida agencies uh, in terms of uh, research finds. Um, and uh, the community exists. It was built under very unfortunate uh, circumstances, but um, it, it's functional and, and you know, I'm, I'm an optimist. I always see the, I think it was Warren Buffett, and I always agree with his saying that when other people see a problem, I see an opportunity. And I think this is happening real time with citrus. Um, the citrus industry in Florida is changed forever, both in size and production and so on. But there is also an opportunity to restructure. There is no reason why Florida won't transition to a higher value fruit and go to fresh fruit production. If if one of the elements of HLB management is keeping strong trees healthy, fertilize properly, irrigate properly, why not put those resources to produce these excellent grapefruits that you have always producing and get and get prime value for it? And vice versa, in California, when I started as a student, the, the industry was valued close to one billion, but maybe just below or just above. Now it's a $3.3 billion industry with overall economic activity in the $7 billion industry. One of my graphs in my talk was, as of two years ago, California is producing more than half of citrus in, in the United States, which is a historical first. Florida was always producing 60, 70% of the total citrus in the United States. So Florida is transformed, but maybe there is an opportunity for something different and, and more sustainable and, and profitable. And and also California is transforming, is, is growing because they see the opportunity of having um, um, uh, fresh fruit um, in the market like nobody else in the North Hemisphere because Europe also Portugal and Spain, they are getting the African citrus psyllid and maybe the um, citrus greening version of, of the disease will show up in Europe soon. So yes, these are challenges. The citrus industry is not new in challenges. We faced the Tristeza pandemic in the 30s and 60s. We found a solution. Before that, we had phytophthora issues and rootstock issues. We survived them and we have, we have thriving industries today. I don't think that the global community that we have built around this disease, you know, last March, 
more than 600 or close to 600 to be more accurate close to 600 scientists, regulators, industry members for 23 different countries came together in Riverside and we had the largest uh, HLB conference in the history in a joint conference with International Organization of Citrus Virologists. And you could see the sparks flying. I think that in the next 10, 15 years, we will have a systems approach that will keep the citrus industry viable and profitable. Perfect. All right. Well, that's just at our time. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today and to be on this month's All In For Citrus podcast. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It was my pleasure. And let's hope uh, that in the next time we talk, we have uh, specific solutions and answers for our growers. That's it for this episode of the All In For Citrus podcast. Again, this is my last time hosting the podcast. I want to thank the researchers who participated in this month's program, as well as Ernie Neff for all of his help with this podcast. Again, next month, Taylor Hillman will be your new host. But for now, I'm Abby Taylor. Thanks for joining us today on the All In For Citrus podcast. Thanks for listening to this month's All In For Citrus podcast from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network.